Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody. Episode 8 of the Push Dose EMS podcast. Uh, today, delicately titled Using Your Noggin. I'm Jeff Matcher, your education QA manager from Milwaukee County. Uh, here to discuss a little bit more in the trauma realm as we talked about last month. Uh, and today we're specifically looking at traumatic brain injuries and some of those injury patterns and how we can intervene to help and provide the best outcomes that we can. Uh, Joining me today to help out with that discussion, uh, from the top to bottom of my Zoom meeting list, uh, joining me QA Supervisor Linda Mattrish. Welcome, Linda. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Assistant Medical Director of Education, Dr. Matt Chin. Dr. Chin, welcome. Hello. Assistant Medical Director for QA, Dr. Tom Engel. Welcome, Dr. Engel. Welcome back after a little bit of a reprieve. Thanks. Great to have you again. Uh, System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. Uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Pojar. Welcome, Dan. Welcome, Jeff and team. And our last, but certainly not least, our EMS fellow, Dr. Luke Grover. Dr. Grover, welcome. Hey, guys. Thanks. I appreciate everybody taking time out of their day to join us. Uh, fairly important conversation as we're kind of carrying on. Uh, big time of year for motorcycle accidents, head injuries, uh, traumas of all types. So it's great to have everybody together to, to chat a little bit more about it. Uh, before we get deep diving into too much of the conversation, uh, I want to turn it over to a couple of folks from the office for some updates. So Dan, what do you have us from OEM? Hey Jeff, thanks. Uh, just a couple quick updates as usual. Uh, the core team will continue to recruit for that. Uh, the EMT positions that we are creating are going before the county board cycle in October here. So we hope to have those approved and starting to hire uh, those uh, in early November. So um, if there's interested EMTs, you can actually go to our Facebook page or our county OEM website and find the links to fill out the interest form. So we'll be sure to contact you if you're interested in being part of the team. And then there's also currently a variety of paramedic positions available as well if you're interested as a paramedic level. Um, just another note too, uh, especially with the rising cases locally here, still continue to be a role model in the community uh, with wearing your mask, being compliant with that, and also practicing good hand hygiene even when you you're in the station, so don't let your guard down. And then the final thing is we are partnering with First Watch, uh, one of the, I think, first EMS systems in the country to develop an EMS provider contract tracing program. So uh, we were able to get some CARES monies allotted to our office to automatically identify uh, when an EMS provider has come into contact with a COVID positive patient and it will send a trigger notification to your department and let you know if someone has the bug or not. So uh, that's going to get built. It's going to take a little bit of time here. So hopefully uh, over the next month or so, we'll be able to provide another update in November. Thanks, Jeff. Perfect. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, that court is going to be a really great opportunity for our providers around the county to, to jump in, uh, really help out with some of the needs that our county is facing. So. Yes, definitely a big need. And Miller Park uh, was just announced it will be a centralized testing site. Uh, starting October 19th, and then there will be some satellite sites uh, around the county, so kind of a spoke and hub model. Very cool. Looking forward to seeing how that develops. Uh, continuing with the theme of updates, we'll head over to the medical direction team and Dr. Weston. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Um, quick one more plug for the core team to uh, echo Dan. 
Um, we're excited to get this started up. It's going to be a huge asset, I think, for uh, the county starting off with COVID testing and expanding into all sorts of other uh, exciting places to help really engage the community in health promotion. So uh, as mentioned, we're looking for EMTs, we're looking for paramedics. Uh, jump on our OEM Facebook page and you can find more details and how to uh, apply or, or sign up for interest. Uh, the other part I wanted to just highlight quickly is really focus on uh, COVID and where we're at. So uh, we've seen all sorts of hotspots around the country since the pandemic started, uh, initially Washington State, then uh, the state of New York, uh, after that, Arizona, Florida, Texas. Uh, unfortunately, now Wisconsin is really uh, the state of high concern. We have the third highest uh, total new cases in the last seven days, and that's third after uh, California and Texas, states that are much, much larger than ours, over five times our population. Uh, and we're third highest for um, cases, new cases per 100,000 people, and that's behind... Um, uh, North and South Dakota. So Wisconsin's in a bad spot uh, to be sure. Uh, and Milwaukee County has seen uh, not quite as bad trends as the state, um, but certainly moving in the wrong direction on a number of metrics. So really just a reminder uh, to be safe out there, be extra cautious with your patient interactions, um, wear your PPE uh, at all times, wear your PPE in the station as you're, uh, as you're instructed by your fire departments. Uh, and just work really hard to keep each other safe. So thanks a lot, and I'll hand it back to Jeff. Terrific. Thanks, Dr. Reston. Uh, to get us rolling today then, so again, the bulk of our conversation today is going to be focused around traumatic brain injuries, recognizing those injury patterns, what's going on with the anatomy, uh, and some of the cases that we've seen in the not-too-distant past here around the county. So uh, to kick us off on the talk, Topic, I am going to bring in Dr. Chin. He's going to give us kind of a brief rundown on some of the anatomy, physiology, what's going on with those different types of bleeds. So Dr. Chin. Yeah, Jeff, thanks uh, so much for the introduction. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, kind of traumatic brain injury. So like Jeff said, we're going to kind of define traumatic brain injury a little bit. We'll move a little bit into the anatomy, um, kind of uh, describing a little bit what the different types of traumatic brain injuries are, where they occur, um, in the in the kind of head, uh, and so you have a little bit of a visual picture of the different types there. And then I'm going to hand it off to my colleague, Dr. Grover, after that to kind of go more in depth uh, on the management and the other things that go along with this. Um, so what is a traumatic brain injury? It's really, uh, you know, an acquired brain injury. It happens when there's a sudden trauma that causes damage to the brain, obviously. Uh, we most commonly think of this uh, in the context of blunt trauma, so a car accident or, or other impact where, where the head is, uh, you know, impacted into something at a high speed speed. Um, it can cause basically two types of injuries, a primary brain injury. That's what happens when you initially impact the object. There's a, a direct physical trauma that causes damage to the brain. And oftentimes, uh, as an EMS provider, we're not really able to mitigate that. That's the damage that already has been done. Those are where preventative measures such as airbags or seatbelts or all those types of things try to limit the amount of primary brain injury. But as an EMS provider, we're really looking to limit this secondary brain injury. So that, that injury that occurs after the initial events that has to do with kind of cell death or uh, hypotension and hypoxia, which contribute to that. Um, so our goal as an EMS provider is really to limit that secondary brain injury. When we talk about kind of uh, TBIs, we often classify them as mild, moderate, or severe. Uh, and those are really based on the patient's Glasgow coma scale as the most common kind of source of, of how we classify that. 
Um, so I would like to talk a little bit about the anatomy. So now that we know what a traumatic brain injury is, now that we know the goals of our therapy are really to try to modify that secondary brain injury and, and understanding what that primary brain injury is, we want to understand a little bit about the, the anatomy of the brain and the skull and the different layers um, so we can understand where we get these injuries from. Um, so we want to talk about the kind of uh, layers above the brain through the skull, basically. So you have the brain. Um, above that, you have what's called the pia mater, which is kind of adhered to the top layer of the brain. Uh, the second layer is called this arachnoid mater. So that's kind of what we see for subarachnoid hemorrhages. So between the brain and the arachnoid, we see these subarachnoid hemorrhages. So sub meaning below. So below that arachnoid layer is where we see the bleeding happen in what's called subarachnoid hemorrhages. Above the arachnoid layer, we have the dura mater. Uh, so when we think of subdural and epidural hemorrhages, which I'll talk about just in a second here, we think about bleeding that's sub or below the dura mater and above the arachnoid mater or epidural. So above, above the dura mater and kind of between the dura and the skull. So those are the potential spaces where we see bleeding that occurs. And they're basically defined by the different layers uh, that occur between the brain and the skull. So again, from very uh, near the brain is the pia, uh, and then the arachnoid, and then the dura mater. And then between those layers are those potential spaces where you can get bleeding after a trauma. Um, so briefly, just to discuss those types of things, as we look at the different types of head bleeds, uh, the first one we, talk, we will talk about again is the epidural hemorrhage. So if we think about epi again, that's above, so above the dural layer. And so that's that potential space between the dura mater and the skull. That's where we see bleeding happen. And it typically causes this kind of convex shape of bleeding. It's most often associated with a middle meningeal, meningeal artery kind of disruption uh, in about 80% of the cases or so. And again, this is the, the rapidly expanding kind of blood that we can see. Again, this is an arterial bleed, so we often see kind of loss of consciousness, then some sort of lucid period, and then stereotypically kind of a significant decline uh, in the patient's mental status. And that's because, again, this is uh, an area that can accumulate blood rather quickly because it's an arterial bleed, and that's what we can see in kind of these epidural hemorrhages. If we think about below that dural layer, so we think about the subdural area. Uh, so again, below the dura and above the arachnoid space there, we think about subdural hemorrhages. These are probably very the most common types of hemorrhages um, that we'll see, especially in elderly patients or alcoholic patients who tend to fall and have kind of chronic uh, head injuries. Again, this is more of this concave uh, shape of bleeding that if you were to look at a CT scan, you'd see it be concave as opposed to the convex of the epidural hemorrhage. And it's really due to tearing of veins. So this is again, where patients don't have that significant immediate decline always. This is kind of a more slow bleed, a venous bleed, you can think of it as, because those are the most types, most common types of vessels that are disrupted. And these patients can have um, kind of present either acutely or again, chronically because of the, um, the speed with which the veins bleed. And so this can be a slow accumulation of blood and a slow decline in cognitive status. The other things we think about, again, are the subarachnoid hemorrhage. So again, below that arachnoid layer. Um, again, these can be traumatic or spontaneous. Uh, and they often are caused by kind of aneurysmal rupture. So that's what we think about in about 85% of cases. Again, sometimes these are not traumatic uh, in nature and sometimes they are. Um, again, also can be caused by some bleeding of some cortical arteries or veins. Uh, and again, occurs in that subarachnoid space. 
The kind of last uh, quick type I'll want to go over is kind of the intracerebral hemorrhage. So those are kind of, uh, you know, bl blood that's in the actual uh, brain. So kind of can range from contusions to hematomas, uh, you know, about uh, 15 to 30% or so of TBIs have some sort of intracerebral component to them. Uh, and these can evolve over time. And oftentimes we, when the, you know, we see these in the hospital, if they're not severe, these are kind of watched and monitored for 24, 48 hours to look for kind of worsening of symptomatology. So those are the most uh, common types of, um, you know, uh, focal bleeds. You can also have some more diffuse uh, brain injury associated with like what's called diffuse axonal injury um, that can happen when there's really shearing uh, of white matter tracks or kind of those tracks in the brain. Um, they can cause severe neurologic dysfunction as well. Those are often hard to diagnose on initial CT scan, but it's something to consider in patients with relatively normal CT scans that have pretty significant neurologic decline or dysfunction since an accident. Um, so those are kind of diffuse injuries that are associated with that type. Uh, but generally speaking, those cover the most common types of kind of, in particular, traumatic brain injuries. So again, epidural hemorrhage, again, arterial bleeding, kind of that top layer of the brain is where you see those versus subdural hemorrhage, again, more common in elderly and alcoholic patients can also be seen in trauma against oftentimes slower accumulation with venous bleeding. And then subarachnoid hemorrhage, um, again, also commonly traumatic, but maybe uh, not traumatic as well, too. Uh, and then intraparenchymal or intracerebral hemorrhages um, are the other type associated with focal injuries. Again, just as, you know, the, the diff more diffuse type can be associated with uh, diffuse axonal injuries. So I think that covers the most common types of these uh, traumatic brain injuries that we can see. Uh, and so with that, I'll pass it to Dr. Grover uh, uh, to kind of discuss more uh, in terms of management and other things associated with TBIs. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Dr. Chen. So now that we've covered the important anatomy of the brain and some of the types of bleeds, let's talk more about some brain physiology and some management considerations here. Again, TBIs are organized based on injury, injury severity scores. Um, the most common one is our, based on our beloved Glasgow Coma Scale. So mild, the GCS 13 to 15 range, moderate TBIs, this 9 to 12 range, and then severe TBIs are GCS of 8 or less. <clears throat> and of the types of bleeds we talked about, it's important to remember that they can all exist as either mild TBI or severe TBI. It's based on the GCS score, which is based on symptoms. So TBI is really a spectrum of symptoms. That said, larger bleeds are generally worse and multiple types of bleeding, like patients who have subdural hematoma and an intraparenchymal hemorrhage, um, that usually denotes a more serious mechanism of injury, and that patient has a poor prognosis than a single bleed type. Now, at the extreme end of the TBI spectrum, uh, the feared deadly complication is that of brain herniation, which is when a bleed is large enough to physically shift the brain in the skull. And when talking about herniation, we have to talk about cerebral perfusion pressures, intracranial pressures, and the compartments of the brain. And for the nerds out there, this whole concept is called the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine, and hopefully this won't be too technical to talk about over a podcast, so here we go. To set the stage here, your brain exists in your skull, which is obviously a very hard outer shell that has a fixed volume, and your skull can't grow in size. It's a simple concept, but this has to be understood before we start talking about intracranial pressures. Within the fixed skull, there are three different compartments or three different components of the brain that kind of make up the brain. There's the brain tissue itself, 
There's the blood in the artery and the veins, and there's cerebral spinal fluid. So brain, blood, and CSF. And each of these three things takes up a certain amount of volume within that fixed space of the skull. And normally this exists in perfect unison because the brain is very good at regulating uh, blood perfusion pressures when intracranial pressures changes by altering blood pressure or by dilating and constricting blood vessels. The problem with this model arises when a fourth component is added to the area inside the skull. And this fourth thing in the setting of trauma will be hemorrhaged blood or hematoma outside the blood vessels. This can also be from non-traumatic cases as well, like growing brain cancers. But again, we're talking about trauma. So now we have four components in the skull competing for space. We have brain, blood, CSF, and the fourth thing is hematoma. As the hematoma continues to bleed and grows in size, the brain has to compensate for this growing space by decreasing the volume of one of the other components inside the brain. And the brain's smart. And so first it starts by decreasing the amount of blood on the venous side of circulation because arterial flow would compromise the brain tissue, or it can decrease the production and volume of cerebral spinal fluid. These compensating mechanisms work very well until the point when CSF and venous blood have been exhausted from the brain or it's all been forced out of the brain already. And at this point, there's nothing left for the brain to give. So finally, arterial blood flow starts to be inhibited, leading to brain ischemia, and the brain tissue itself begins to shift away from the growing hematoma. You can think about brain shift just like tracheal deviation and attention pneumothorax, right? The extrapleural air is shifting the mediastinal structures in the chest to the other side of the chest. This same thing happens in the brain. And on brain imaging, this is termed midline shift and denotes a significant amount of pressure on one side of the skull. This is a very bad sign. And if untreated, this shift can lead to herniation. And there are different types of herniation, but basically herniation is when the brain tissue on one side is forced and compressed through small spaces within the skull, which leads to direct brain ischemia. This causes symptoms of rapidly decreasing GCS, stroke-like deficits, and then the classic unequal pupils with one size significantly dilated. Now, some indicators that your patient is going down this path of increasing intracranial pressure and possibly herniation are a big one's declining GCS in front of you, like you're just watching them decompensate. Um, and the other one is you can look for a pattern in the vital signs called the Cushing's triad, which I think about as like the opposite of vitals in shock. In Cushing's triad, the patient is hypertensive, bradycardic, and then with an abnormal or de depressed respiratory drive. This is a sign that intracranial pressures are climbing too high and may progress to herniation ultimately. Herniation is a very bad prognostic sign and needs either a neurosurgeon to relieve the pressure from this hematoma, or then in the hospital, we also use other things like hyperosmolar medications that can help decrease pressures within the brain. And these would be hypertonic saline or mannitol. Hyperventilation, I'll also just mention quickly, it can be utilized for short periods of time to lower intracranial pressure. However, this is a tricky balance between lowering ICP and inducing further brain ischemia, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. 
But from an EMS standpoint, the faster these patients are delivered to a trauma bay, the better their outcomes are because the faster that a surgeon can intervene. So now let's transition a little bit into treating these patients in your rig because outside of the most extreme circumstances that we just talked about, there's really no like TBI medications, right? And this holds true when these patients are monitored in the hospital as well. Good care of TBI patients focuses on good supportive care. And by that, I mean monitoring their vitals and treating numbers that are in extreme ranges, most notably oxygen saturations and blood pressure. Hypoxia is bad and oxygen needs to be applied liberally to these patients. Hypotension is bad, and they need to be given ample IV fluids to keep blood pressures within normal ranges. And there have been multiple studies that look at these poor prognostic indicators in TBI patients in the pre-hospital setting, and hypoxia and hypotension are two big ones. In general, even a single episode of hypoxia or hypotension in TBI patients doubles their likelihood of mortality. And in patients where hypoxia and hypotension were seen together, these outcomes are even worse. These patients have very poor prognosis. And this is important because these are things that are easily corrected in the field with oxygen and IV fluids. So you need to keep a really close eye on these numbers. And if you notice a downtrend, treat it early. So apply oxygen and give IV fluids bolus. Other considerations in the pre-hospital setting, if you have one of these patients with a GCS less than eight or really any concern about airway protection, you need to strongly consider placing an advanced airway earlier rather than later. Because another common way that these patients die is actually from things like aspiration pneumonia, from inability to protect their airway. And especially if you have to bag one of these patients, there's gonna be a significant amount of air getting into their stomach, which you can't really avoid, which can induce vomiting. So protect their airway for them. And in the event you do place an advanced airway or actually have to intubate the patient and are now breathing for them, it's very important to keep a close eye on that end tidal CO2 and to keep it in a normal range, that 35 to 45 range. This same concept applies to cardiac arrest patients for the same reason. And with a critical patient, when the adrenaline is pumping, it's really common to find yourself bagging like every two seconds and we've all done it, um, which of course is way too fast for any patient. And what this actually does physiologically is induces a respiratory alkalosis. By blowing off all that CO2, it raises the pH of the blood or makes it less acidotic within the brain. Um, unfortunately, in this scenario, the brain monitors CO2 levels and pH very closely in the blood. So the brain reacts to this uh, decreased CO2 concentration by vasoconstricting blood vessels, which leads to decreased blood flow into an already damaged brain, um, and essentially induces brain hypoxia and ischemia, which is a very bad thing and can just exacerbate injuries from TBIs. So the final thoughts, and in review, I'll leave you. TBI is really a spectrum of disease that can change very quickly. And just to remind you, in the OEM trauma field guideline, it says that patients with a GCS of 13 or less need to go to a trauma center, which practically speaking means anyone with a traumatic injury and anything other than like mild confusion should make you very concerned about a serious intracranial injury that has the potential to get a lot worse. And please reassess these patients multiple times because changes in GCS can be fast and you may need to intervene quicker than you think. Hypoxia and hypotension are killers. 
So be proactive. And if you see downtrending vitals, give them oxygen and give them IV fluids. Or if you've already found them hypoxic or hypotensive, you need to aggressively correct those. Also remember, just protect their airway, use advanced airways when they're indicated, and then keep that end tidal CO2 within a normal range. And that's all I've got for you guys today. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Dr. Grover. I just wanted to follow up with one question for you, uh, specifically on that end tidal reading. Because I know for a long time and a lot of providers were taught uh, in the instance of a head injury to try and, and I don't want to use the word hyperventilate, uh, but to maybe make them a little bit hypocapnic and get them into that 30 to 35 range. Is there a recent change to that guidance and that thought process? And now we're trying to keep them a little bit more in the, that normal ranges. Sure. So I guess it depends on what you're trying to accomplish by bagging the patients. I would say if you're concerned about herniation and you get to the point where you think you need to go um, for a little hyperventilation, and getting around that 30 range is appropriate because it actually does uh, cause quite a, um, a significant decrease in intracranial pressures. If you're just you know, bagging these patients normally, I would still keep it within a normal range. Because again, when you make these patients hypocapnic, you're actually causing vasoconstriction to the blood vessels within the brain and decreasing the blood flow to the brain. And again, this, this applies to like cardiac arrest patients as well as TBIs. You wanna be ca really careful um, about hyperventilating these patients when you don't mean to. Perfect, thanks. Yeah, that, that did clear it up. So really we're looking for, you know, any signs that there might be herniation occurring, uh, then it may be a consideration, but for the most part, bag them normally. Absolutely, yep. Excellent. Uh, so that was a good bit of information from Dr. Grover and Dr. Chin uh, in looking at those evaluations and treatments of those head injury patients. Uh, and these patients certainly do happen in our areas and all over Milwaukee County and a number of them have hit our CQIP system. Uh, and I'd love to take the opportunity to grab Dr. Engel and Linda, uh, have a little discussion on some of those cases that came through and what we can learn from them. So I'll let you guys take it away. Good afternoon. Uh, as Jeff said, we do get a, a number of cases that are related to um, head injury, and um, generally they involve whether or not the destination was appropriate and whether or not the appropriate care level of ALS was provided for uh, transport. Um, so our first case um, is a case where the hospital brought a concern to us regarding um, whether or not the patient should have been transported to a trauma center. So this was a 94-year-old female that was altered after falling down uh, approximately 10 steps. Um, EMS at the time reported no injuries or trauma. Um, and at the hospital, uh, imaging found this patient to have a subdural hematoma. Um, so when we reviewed the documentation, the family had reported that uh, this patient had fallen down from the top of the stairs to the bottom. Um, the assessment that of no injuries by uh, the providers, uh, they didn't really feel that was consistent with falling from the top of the stairs. Uh, they also noted that the patient had suffered from early um, Alzheimer's. Uh, and they wrote that the patient had been transported to the hospital without incident. 
Uh, Dr. Engel, would you like to add? Yeah, thanks, Linda. So let's start with a couple of good things. You know, a good thing about this case, uh, the crew placed a cervical collar on this, uh, this patient prior to transport, uh, which is really important. Elderly people, um, even with ground level falls, have high degrees of cervical spine injury. But moving on to the TBI stuff, falling down 10 stairs uh, at 94 years old is a pretty long way to go. And they actually documented, I believe, a, a Glasgow coma scale of 13. Um, you know, I think it, one of the, the fallacies that people come into is patients with underlying dementia or memory issues, um, they'll sometimes take that GCS as being, um, you know, their baseline. But I think you have to be really careful in this and always err on the side of caution. Because like Dr. Rober said, a person who has a possible TBI with a GCS of 13 uh, over the age of 65 should be transported to a trauma center. I mean, that's just really because these traumatic brain injuries really do require a high degree of support and specialist consultations. We use our neurosurgical team at Freighter Hospital. We use our neurointensive care doctors for these patients, really to give them the best chance of uh, getting back to a normal uh, a life. So the last thing being this elderly person, this will be a little bit of a theme. They tend to have a really high rate of subdural hematomas. As you get older, your brain tends to shrink a little bit, which pushes places some pressure on uh, the bridging veins, which connect the brain over to the dura. Um, and that can cause uh, stress on those bridging veins and even minimal trauma can cause that subdural hematoma. That's why we see it so commonly in our older uh, patient population. Excellent, thank you. Our second case has similar concerns involving both transport destination as well as um, level of transport. Um, this was a 55-year-old female um, who reportedly fell while getting out of her vehicle earlier um, the previous day. Um, the, the person that was with her states that she was um, unconscious immediately after the episode. Um, she was left alone for a few hours. When the family came back to check on the patient, she was found unresponsive. Um, it was also noted that she'd had a witness seizure prior to them calling 911. Um, this patient was transported by BLS to, uh, not to the trauma center, and um, when we reviewed the reporting, there was very little documentation uh, by the initial crew that evaluated, so we addressed that separately. Um, however, the transporting unit provided a lot of information. Um, they said that uh, during their uh, transport, the patient had some seizure-like activity. Um, the when the patient got to the hospital, they ended up doing an urgent head CT, uh, which came back um, positive for a subarachnoid hemorrhage, intraparenchymal hemorrhages, etc. Acute respiratory failure, uh, and this patient needed transfer to the trauma center. Dr. Engel. Wow, that's a really sick patient. So a couple things to, to kind of hit up on on this patient. You know, somebody who falls and then has can and then has a seizure after the fall for being unresponsive. Those people are are pretty concerning. Um, a lot of times that means that something really bad is going on. And I think what we're seeing here is this patient had a pretty significant traumatic brain injury. So seizures post head trauma are something that should really heighten your awareness that, you know, something bad is happening that would require ALS transport and likely um, even considerations of, you know, taking to a trauma center based on your other criteria. Um, the second thing is this patient um, 
also really had a, a pretty significant episode of hypotension and hypoxia, I believe. Their blood pressure was like 80 over 50, and they had some documented hypoxia with some altered mental status. This is exactly what Dr. Grover was getting at with, you know, the hypotension, the hypoxia, the altered uh, CO2 levels are really what kill our patients with traumatic brain injury. So being very diligent on doing your best to identify these early and treat them extremely aggressively is going to be something you're really going to want to um, consider. So this person would have done really well with high flow oxygen, airway management uh, to prevent that aspiration, and then blood pressure support with um, at minimum IV fluid boluses in the pre-hospital setting. Um, so, and then the last thing being, you know, uh, when we have patients who have seizures, uh, they need to be back to complete mental status baseline prior to being turned down to our private BLS systems. And if they're not um, back to mental status baseline, we should be transporting these patients. Uh, so I think those are the big three main key takeaways for this, uh, this patient here. Thank you. Our uh, final case uh, we're gonna discuss today is a case where the patient was transported to freighter, not necessarily because it was a trauma center, um, this patient uh, was transported um, due to um, what was felt to be um, alcohol issues. So this patient was uh, brought to Freighter by MedUnit with a report of um, alcohol abuse, found lying on their bed at home. They were last seen at a bar two days ago. Uh, 911 was called by the friends after they went to check on the patient. Um, the report from EMS was stressing the um, incident, um, uh, alcohol abuse from two days ago, um, and they didn't report any, um, any major findings other than um, they noted that the patient was a little disoriented. Um, they mentioned um, a, a right eyelid drooping. Uh, and when this patient got to the hospital, uh, this patient was very sick, had... Um, a subdural hematoma with a midline shift and was actually taken to the OR for a craniotomy. Dr. Engel? Yeah. So, you know, first thing, these patients who are, who are drinking alcohol, who are, are chronic alcohol abusers, are really out to get you every time. Um, you know, you can't, unfortunately, it's hard to trust their history. It's hard to trust their exam because they have substances in their body that is limiting their pain tolerance. Um, and even a couple of days later, uh, they can still have, they can just be hanging out at home and still have really, really bad injury patterns. So those al alcoholics or people who are intoxicated are really out to get you. First thing to raise your level of suspicion. Um, second thing being, you know, it looks like the, the abnormal physical exam finding, you know, I guess you could consider this being, if you didn't have any trauma, you would consider a stroke evaluation and doing a BFAST on this person. But somebody with the signs of head trauma who then have things that might fit into your BFAST positive, well, they're not typically going to be activated as a, as a stroke alert because it's going to be trauma related. You should think about this as being something really bad actually did happen to the brain because just like in stroke, um, when you have injuries to the brain uh, in trauma, you have physical exam findings that can be very similar to those stroke findings you can have. Problems with moving one part of your body, facial droop, slurred speech, altered mental status, horrible headache, vision changes. All those things can indicate actual injuries to the brain. So they kind of heighten your suspicion of what's going on. Um, and you know, the last thing being, uh, when they got to the hospital, I think this kind of leads to what Dr. Grover was talking about with the Monroe Kelly doctrine. The reason they did a craniotomy or craniectomy, I'm sorry, is when they removed part of the skull is to really allow that, um, 
that brain to swell because we were talking about how the skull is an enclosed space. And as that injury to the brain occurs, the swelling occurs, which increases the pressure in the brain that ultimately inhibits blood flow and causes that secondary injury that Dr. Chin mentioned. So this is just a really good example of how when you have such a bad traumatic brain injury, sometimes our surgical colleagues will remove part of the skull to allow that brain to swell and expand to prevent that horrible injury that occurs due to the pressure in the brain, which is the main killer in our traumatic brain injuries. And then the, the things we know that we can fix in the pre-hospital setting are the low oxygen levels, the altered CO2 levels, and the low blood pressure and preventing aspiration with good early airway management. All of those things help us buy time to get them to our surgical colleagues and for us to consider more advanced medications and more surgical interventions that we can do to hope to prevent that secondary brain injury in hopes of getting these people back to a normal level of function. So uh, once again, these three cases were great, all learning experiences. Uh, and I just hope you can kind of take them and put them in your back pocket so the next time you come across somebody like this, you'll be able to uh, hopefully work through them really, really well. Thank you. Terrific, thanks, Linda, Dr. Engel. Uh, some great information there and, and some interesting cases from around the county. Really showing how these head injuries uh, can present themselves in a lot of different ways, uh, and really some things to be looking out for out there in the field. So, uh, with that, we've come to the end of everything planned. I'll open the floor if anybody's got any final comments, questions, concerns, snide remarks we want to put out. Jeff, could I give a shout out to a crew? Absolutely, Linda. Um, I was at, uh, in Freighter on Saturday night, and uh, I want to give kudos to the West Dallas crew that brought in a PMB patient with resuscitation in progress, CPR in progress, that um, had their uh, MTAC laminated sheet right in front of them, uh, along with a guideline. And um, I was able to just speak with them briefly and say, you know, Great job using that uh, on the radio call, having it ready. Um, and I would encourage others to do so as well. So it's nice to see that. Thanks, Linda. Yeah, that's a great work from that West Dallas crew. Uh, we, a lot of time and effort goes into some of those resources we put out. It's great to see when people can, can get a chance to utilize them, help make that process of uh, transfer and care and treatment a little bit more smooth. So uh, good job, ladies and gentlemen out there. Uh, Thank you everybody for taking time out of their day uh, to sit and listen to us have a really nice conversation about somebody's head injury. So uh, thanks to our panel for the discussion and thanks to all of you for listening. So uh, stay safe, have a great rest of the month. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye now. <laughs>